Hi friends, and welcome to the next episode of the Oakham Church Podcast. We're in our series called Metamorphosis, and today we find ourselves one more time in 1 Thessalonians. I'm not going to read um, the entire letter to you, we're going to just take a little part um, from the fourth chapter of the first Thessalonians letter. Uh, in this series called Metamorphosis, where we're travelling through these letters written by this man named Paul and looking at the patterns that are found within these letters that can teach us about our own transformation. But also we're looking at the life of Paul and the, the patterns that show themselves in his own life and in his own transformation and ask ourselves what that can teach us about our transformation our spiritual formation not just as individuals but as groups of people as communities even as the church and so we find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians and we're going to read from chapter 4 just starting in verse 13 if you're following along at home and regarding the question friends that has come up about what happens to those already dead and buried we don't want you in the dark any longer first off You must not carry on over them like people who have nothing to look forward to, as if the grave were the last word. Since Jesus died and broke loose from the grave, God will most certainly bring back to life those who died in Jesus. And then this, we can tell you with complete confidence, we have the master's word on it, that when the master comes again to get us, those of us who are still alive will Get, get not get a jump on the dead and leave them behind. In actual fact, they'll be ahead of us. The master himself will give the command. Archangel thunder, God's trumpet blast. He'll come down from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise. They'll go first. Then the rest of us who are still alive at the time will be caught up with them into the clouds to meet the master. Oh, we'll be walking on air. And then there will be one huge family reunion with the master. So reassure one another with these words. So you're in for a treat on the podcast this week. Because I'm going to clear up once and for all, all those questions that we all have about the second coming and the apocalypse and the end times and the rapture. What? No, of course I'm not. This is a hot topic. This is confusing. This is ultimately unknowable. Because for as many different denominations of Christianity that there are, there are different understandings and angles and takes on what all this means and what it all looks like. Helpfully, nobody will agree with nobody else. So what is Paul going on about here in this part of the letter? Is he being literal? Is he being figurative? See, Paul is quoting from prophets like Daniel and Isaiah in this section. So why does he choose to use these particular words and phrases? Is this supposed to all be taken as a metaphor? Is this simply symbolic? What's going on? And this isn't just an intellectual debate. This isn't just arguing over words for the sake of arguing over words. This isn't just a thought experiment. Paul's not just writing these words on the page to show you how clever he is and to get you to just live in your head. 
Because what you think about the future affects how you live here and now today. You see, anticipating about the future affects the present. So even if ultimately we don't know, even if there is guesswork or speculation about what happens when we die or what's going to happen when Jesus returns, it can affect the present and it can affect our behaviour and our outlook. Okay, so before we get any further in the podcast, I do just want to state that I will be playing the part of devil's advocate for the rest of the podcast now. I will say some challenging things about the words used and how the verses are usually interpreted. I'll try and twist it and and look at it from other angles. But my aim isn't on this podcast and is never to try and convince anyone of anything or to change people's minds or to get people to think exactly the same way that I do. So with all that said, there's a few big ideas from this potentially polarising passage from Paul. First has to do with context. It's where we always start. Context, context, context. You see, it does get a bit messy and a bit technical when we start to think about who this letter is written to, who this letter, First Thessalonians, is actually for. Because this ecclesia in Thessalonica weren't 21st century westernised people like you and me. This ecclesia in Thessalonica are ancient people and they are Greek. They are people that are steeped in all of that culture and that tradition and that religion and that understanding. See, Hellenistic Greek spirituality has these very separate ideas about body and soul. The body is in one place and the soul is some place else. The body is good for a set type of things, certain things you use your body for and certain things you use your soul for and never the two shall meet. But that's not the Jewish idea. That's not the idea that Paul as Shaul brings with him to the table. See the Hebrew understanding was much more about this holistic way of seeing things. It was about combining the two. It was seeing the interconnectedness in all things. It was about wholeness. That's what shalom means. So after context, we get to the second big idea that we need to think about. And that is the Old Testament backdrop. You see, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, Paul is... Uh, using phrases and words that he's taken directly from Old Testament prophets, people like Daniel and Isaiah. And what a prophet would do is a a prophet would predominantly talk about God's rule and God's reign and God's kingdom in the current climate right now. A prophet, was their main job was to critique the religious and political establishments of that day. They would point out what was wrong. They would go to a specific leader of a nation or to a a nation as a whole and point out what they were doing wrong, challenging these present circumstances. See, this prophetic thing that we think about now is always about them kind of almost fortune telling, telling us what's going to happen in the future. 
But first and foremost, a prophet's job was to tell us what was happening here and now. But they would always back that message up with some kind of hope. The prophets always look forwards towards the promised earthly kingdom of God. It wasn't to the afterlife. It wasn't to a heaven, whatever they meant by that. It wasn't about someplace else, someplace separate, someplace over there and far away. The Hebrew vision was always about here. But a new here, a better here, a whole here. A here when there was shalom, which is peace and wholeness and everything in its right placeness and newness and completeness. That was the prophet's longing. That's what you get when you read these Old Testament prophetic books. So we've looked at context. We've looked at the fact that Paul uses um, prophet's words from the Old Testament. But we also need to look at, and this is the final piece in the kind of puzzle that we're trying to piece together here, is the fact that this is dealing with apocalypse. And this is using very apocalyptic language and apocalyptic literature. That's the genre that we kind of read within this letter. And as with any kind of literature, there are rules. See, if you're back at school studying um, the sonnets of Shakespeare, it wouldn't take you long to find that there were these certain patterns that you could find within the verses that were written down. So much so that uh, over time, as you read it, it would almost feel like you had already read something, even when you hadn't. The same is true for apocalyptic writing. There are patterns. See, there are beasts and there are animals and there are wars within spiritual realms that seem to be symbolic of what's going on on earth. And you get that kind of stuff in Daniel, in the prophetic section of the book of Daniel. And you get that kind of stuff in Revelation, in the prophetic section of Revelation as well. You also get it in places like the Dead Sea Scrolls because it is all apocalyptic literature. And one of the main problems that we have with this theme of apocalyptic literature is that as Christians for hundreds, if not thousands of years, we've treated this type of writing almost as if it's like a crystal ball. It's a way of being able to tell the future, that we can spot the, the, the signs on the on the horizon that are telling us that the end times are coming and that you, you hear preachers getting all fired up about this sort of thing and you can um, build a bunker and get yourself ready for the, the end of the world. Where people will treat, take this verse and add it to this verse and add it to this verse and be able to show you that that was foretelling the Nazis. Or how this verse in Revelation and that verse in Revelation points us towards ISIS. But just imagine this for a second. Imagine you had a beautiful painting perfectly executed with layers and colour and texture and composition. And this painting, this beautiful painting that you owned and had hung up in pride of place in your house, was this painting was of the most amazing looking cake you have ever seen in your life. 
the, the way that it was used, the textures that were used to, to build it up with the oils on the canvas almost looked like it was an actual real cake that you could taste from the canvas. But now imagine taking that painting and imagine that you try to use that painting as a recipe for making your own actual cake. How well would that work? It wouldn't, would it? And that's kind of what I'm getting at now with how this apocalyptic literature has been used, or I should say misused and misread in the past. So Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. And what do we do? We worry about tomorrow. Jesus says, no one knows the times set by the Father, not the angels, not even the Son. Jesus is saying that even himself, he doesn't know the times set by the Father. And what do we do? We say, oh, it's okay if you don't know Jesus, because we've got some weird professor over here who's figured it all out for you. So those are our three big themes there. We have context, we have the Old Testament backdrop of what Paul's writing down, and then we have this theme of it being apocalyptic literature. Another thing that we have to realise is, uh, when we're thinking about the culture and the day that this letter was written, is that this was written within the uh, boundaries of the Roman Empire. And what would happen is that, that Caesar would appear. Caesar would appear and make his presence known to a, a people, to a city. So he was coming and doing a, a triumph like we looked at on Palm Sunday. And he would enter the city and make his presence known. This was this Greek word, parousia. And whenever he went on a royal visit, his parousia was announced. His presence was made known. And he'd go to, from town to town or city to city to visit to see what the tax money had been paid for and to check on his, his empire to make sure everything was ticking away as it should do. And so if Caesar visited Thessalonica, he would appear outside of the city, this kind of self-proclaimed son of God, as was one of Caesar's titles, and he would grace that place with his parousia, his presence, this would be known by everybody who read these words of Paul in this letter or who had these words read to them. Paul here is challenging the very ideas of where peace and salvation come from. See, this is a dangerous part of this letter. Paul, in essence, is saying Caesar isn't the answer. That's not where salvation and peace is found. And that's exactly what these colonial cities of the empire did when they were preparing to welcome the appearance, the, the parousia of Caesar. The whole place would leave that city and meet Caesar outside of the city. And then they would all enter the city together. They would all go into the city as one. Again, sounding very reminiscent of the Palm Sunday story. So if Paul's choosing to use those words and that imagery as a metaphor, then the question is, what is he trying to say? What is he trying to put across? It's this, that the presence, that the appearance of Christ 
doesn't necessarily mean that we're all out of here. We're gone. So the, the, the second coming of Christ is the, the sign that, yep, that's it. We can all leave now. We don't have to worry. No, because if we keep to this metaphor that Paul is using, it's about coming back. It's about arriving back into the city, which is exactly what the Old Testament prophets were talking about. They were talking about the earthly rule and the earthly reign of the heavenly king. It's an invitation into the here and now, into this physical, tangible, concrete space of the city to see what the kingdom is like. Now, as Paul is kind of travelling through this himself, it's al- you can almost hear him working it out himself, working out his own transformation as he goes along. And Paul is getting to it, but he's, he's not quite there yet on his own transformational journey. But he is getting to the point of saying this, that the presence of Christ is partly the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is right here and right now. So in a way, you could ask, when is the second coming of Christ going to happen? And you could answer that question with, it's already happening. In the church, in individuals, in this body of Christ, this second coming is, is already taking place. There's this now and not yet to it, just like there's this now and this not yet to the kingdom. I just want to leave you with that, really, to think about. Uh, there's a lot going on um, in our world today, in the news, on social media. Uh, it can be very easy to to kind of try and read between the lines and see things that maybe aren't there or things that don't quite mean what you perhaps think they might mean. Or it can be really easy as well to get swept up by someone who who comes onto the scene and talks like they know what they're talking about and they've done all this research to back it up and they think that this war in this country is a symbol of this that went on in Revelation and and this sign means that and and therefore the end is happening, the end is nigh, uh, that Jesus will return on the... 8th of June 2022 but in true reality we don't know nobody knows Jesus says not even Jesus himself knows the hour our job is not to try and decode this our job is not to try and rub that crystal ball of revelation to find out the when no our job is to treat it like it's happening now anyway Jesus in the Gospels over and over again warns us of this, doesn't he? He says, just be ready, be ready now, be watching and praying and ready now. Act as if the kingdom is happening right now and right here among you and then you'll never not be ready. And in fact, I'd take it a step further and say the reason Jesus wants us to act like kingdom come right now on here, on earth as it is in heaven, is because in fact it does Every time we love our neighbours, every time we pray for our enemies and those who persecute us, every time we help someone out in need, every time we give these acts of generosity and service and kindness to others, every time we feel compassion and empathy and love for others, the kingdom is coming, that heaven is meeting with earth, that that second coming is already 
happening. So friends, be on the lookout, be watching, be ready, and be the Christ to everyone around you. Grace and peace.